You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. What's happening? Thanks for pressing play today on this episode number 55. Happy New Year to you. Did you write down your goals? Did you create goals for the new year? If you didn't, go ahead. It's not too late. And if you did, but you already kind of fell off, which most people do by this time of year, it's okay. Just pick up where you left off and don't quit. Today's episode is about what happens when you dream and you write down your dream on paper and then you talk about it and then you dare to walk it out. What happens? We have a great guest for you today. Today's guest is a two-time Grammy-nominated jazz pianist who has worked with the likes of Art Blakey, Benny Golson, and many others. I'm so happy to bring to you right now Mr. Jeff Keezer. Jeff, welcome to Behind the Note Podcast. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So I want to get to know you just a little bit better. We just introduced you. Uh, Tell us some things you're really into uh, when you're not performing music, what do you like to do? You know, I, I live now in San Diego, California. Um, I wish I could say that I was a surfer like uh, some of my fellow musicians like Peter Sprague down here and Bob Magnuson and some of those guys. But I just, you know, I'm a father. I have a seven-year-old son. When I'm in town, you know, between tours, he's, he's with me. And, and I'm just kind of, you know, I don't get out much (laughs) really you know so i'm just kind of just kind of into playing with my kid and he sort of plays a little bit of piano and some percussion instruments and things so we jam together you know and in my music room and we just sort of have fun and uh how old is your boy now he's he's seven yeah prime time for uh starting the instruments nice yeah yeah You, you know we we tried uh giving him piano lessons when he was four and we found out that he was pulling the wool over our, our eyes because he was not actually learning to read notes. He was just picking up everything by ear. And so he would memorize these pieces and then occasionally glance up to pretend he was looking at the music. But <laughs> uh, Sounds <laughs> so, like a professional in the making. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, he can, he's got great ears and he can pretty much play anything he hears um, or pick it out on the piano. And, and the challenge is just getting him to understand the discipline and rigor of learning right. to play an instrument, you know? Now, I had this conversation with other musician friends of mine who are parents, and I wanted to ask you, because you're a musician and you play piano, were you the one teaching your son how to play, or did you hire someone else to do that? You know, it was the same when I was a kid growing up. I mean, my mother sort of started me out, and she she was a piano teacher professionally she played french horn professionally and and also taught piano and taught voice at home and and so she kind of got me started on on the keyboard but it's pretty hard to teach your own kid because they you know kids you know we we all never thought that our parents knew anything or that they knew what they were talking about you know right so so, um you know cameron is like he's like seven going on 15 you know yes Um, but uh so no, we've had a couple different piano teachers, and now we've got this guy in San Diego that, among other things, plays organ for the San Diego Padres for baseball games, and uh, he, he's a really cool dude. And he, you know, he teaches him 
the, the basics and also get some improvising because he loves to improvise. And uh, I think they're having a good time. So I think I found a right, the right match for him now. That's good. So that's pretty much consistent with what I've learned from my other musician friends. Everybody seems to hire out help for the, for the same reasons you stated. So pretty cool. You know, and, and then I thought about that the other day. Sometimes, like I've worked with several traditional uh, musicians from other cultures, like uh, this guy Yasukatsu Oshima from Okinawa, and he plays an instrument called a sanshin, which is like a Japanese, like a shamisen. It's like an Okina- Okinawan uh, sort of three-string lute-type instrument. And, you know, he said he learned from his grandfather. And I remember talking to some... Last year I was on tour in Alaska, and they the at the, the Alaska Native Heritage Center in, in Anchorage, they put on a little kind of presentation and performance for us for the for the musicians that you know we were there on tour and and it was some alaska natives doing like their their traditional dance and music and i remember talking to one of the guys going like how did you learn this stuff because it's so i mean obviously it's not a kind of music that's written down it's not notated you know it's um and he says oh yeah i learned from my grandfather and i thought you know that's really interesting that it it must be possible for a grandfather to teach their grandchild and because it's not the parent. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I can see that. That makes sense. That makes sense. They have so a different influence. That. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's like it's still in the family. I don't know. Interesting though. But no, I, I didn't study music with my grandparents, unfortunately, but uh, I, my, my grandfather uh, on my mother's side, who he lived to be a hundred years old. He was a Packers fan, lived in Wisconsin. And, uh, he, on his 95th or 96th birthday, the, the Packers won the Super Bowl. Nice. <laughs> Happy birthday. He, he, yeah, and he said that he, had, he needed to live that long in order to, to, you know, to see that happen again. Because I think it had been like 30 years or something in wow. between. Um, anyway, any, that was just a tangential story about my grandfather. But That's a good story. I don't think anybody knew that before. So now we have a Behind the Note <laughs> podcast exclusive. Yes. We want to talk about your professional career, and I want to start by asking, not the traditional when did you start playing kind of thing, but we want to know when your professional career began. What marked that for you? It began around the age of 14. I had a trio with some buddies of mine that were in high school that were like a year or two older than me, and we were playing We were playing some of the, you know some of the stuff that was kind of happening around the mid 80s so like you know sort of the end of the weather report era and steps ahead was doing stuff and david sambor so it was, it was sort of for lack of a better term smooth jazz but not really more like fusion kind of stuff i guess technically fusion but that's that's sort of what we were doing so we started playing little rooms around eau claire wisconsin where i grew up and and you know gigs out there were like you'd play for the grand opening of a car wash you know, or uh, you'd play in a pizza parlor and they wouldn't pay you, but they'd, they'd feed you pizza, you know, things like that. And, and my dad uh, also plays drums, so I got a lot of experience playing in a, uh, like, like a hotel lounge. We had sort of a steady gig for a couple of years um, and, and also playing private 
gigs and weddings and things like that. So I grew up playing, learning jazz, but also learning a lot of polkas and <laughs> pop tunes, you know, 70s singer-songwriter tunes, things like that. that that's a really good start because that's uh, uh, functional for lack of a better word. I mean, a lot of people, when you're younger, right, you have an idea of being a pop star, for example. And not a lot of people actually make it to that to that level, right, of stardom. But you will end up having a career of playing locally, and that's what people need. So that sounds like a really good uh, beginning to a career as a teenager as well. That was great. I was pretty busy, and I was actually making money. Um, and, and so I, I feel like I'm really lucky that I've always been able to make money playing music. You know, I haven't, uh, yet held down, uh, you know, quote unquote day job. So I've always been able to, to do what I love and, and actually get paid for it, which I think is a really, really special thing that I am grateful for and I don't take lightly, but yeah, so around 15, 14, 15, and that's, uh, I was on that gig with my dad. Um, where I really started to learn jazz tunes. Like I had a real book, like one of the first edition real books, which for those of you who don't know what the real book is, it's kind of a, a jazz, an insider sort of, you, you know, nerdy jazz thing. But it's basically a, it uh, was a published book of lead sheets or kind of cheat sheets, just, just sort of basic melody and chords uh, for a lot of tunes that would be played, you know, in, in the jazz canon at that time, um, you know, and it wasn't entirely accurate either. There was a lot of famous sort of real book glaring, you know, errors and things. So a lot of us ended up learning those tunes wrong, but for the most part, it was a great resource to have and, and continues to be, um, now. Um, and of course now, you know, with, with like the iReal, that, that app, you know, that's sort of taken those concepts and extended it a little further, um, yes, you know, there's a lot of great resources out there for young musicians um, and older musicians too. Now, when you were 14, uh, starting your career, were you involved in the business aspect of booking performances and things of that nature? Well, not yeah, not really. I, I mean, the music business, you know, in 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 1980s Eau Claire, Wisconsin, pretty much consisted of just the phone ringing and picking it up and someone saying, Hey, I've got a, a job that pays $35 at, you know, whatever on Friday. And can you do it? And, and then you looked in your, your, uh, week at a glance, uh, you know, calendar yes, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> I remember that man. <laughs> or, or for some of us career at a glance, you know, wow, but, yes, yeah, that was pretty much it. So there I, wasn't really much thought given to it. There wasn't a lot, there wasn't really strategy or, um, you know, there was none of that stuff really came into play until much later when, when, you know, you, you know, after you start touring and you start recording and then you have like, for example, let's say you have a new album coming out. Well, then you have to figure out, okay, now I need to book some semblance of a tour or at least some dates around this, the release of this album and, you know, make it an event, you know, album release, you know, CD release event, and, and and the sort of catch-22 that happens to so many musicians now is, you know, so many of us that don't have agents, the, the agents are so difficult to find. And, and the ones, the good ones that are out there, and there are some really good ones, but they're all, they're just busy. You know, their rosters are full. So 
you end up in this situation where you have a new album out and then you're trying to, you know, like, especially if it's your debut album, for example, this, this happens, you know, you're, you're trying to book gigs and uh, the venues that you're contacting are saying, well, we, we've never heard of you, this kind of thing. And, and, uh, and, and then, you know, when you're trying to sort of, let's say, attract the attention of, of an agent who could be effective, they always want to see some kind of track record. So it's kind of like, how do you actually, the question really is, how do you actually develop this history and this, this track record of, you know, having successful gigs and successful recordings, you know, and people have to be kind of willing to take a chance on, on unknown uh, quantities, you know, and, and what ends up happening is like a lot of the venues now, you see the same artists appearing over and over because it's just easier, I think, for people booking venues to to go with what they know. And they say, well, this guy, you know, he packs the place every time, so we're just going to just keep popping them in every four months or whatever, you know? Right. And um, so with your experience over the years, have you witnessed or experienced a way to overcome that? We we never heard of you. Come back later when you've done something. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> yeah, right. For for my own in my own situation, it's a little maybe semi unique, and maybe it's kind of a you know forties age thing. Also, that my name now um, has seems to have significant value as a sideman. People say, "Oh, Jeffrey Keezer's in your band. Oh, that's great. We love him. He was here with Chris Bodie last year, or he was here with so and so. He's great." And and so my name adds value to someone else's. Uh, brand, but on its own, it's difficult for me to book gigs as a leader. And I started thinking, well, you, you know, why is it that my name means something when I'm playing with another group, but it doesn't mean enough to to give me a chance as you know on my own as a leader? So that that's kind of tough. But I'm thinking now that it's probably going to go the way of my career. That is, it's probably going to go the way of uh, some of the older you know, masters that are out here now, like uh, Kenny Barron or uh, to some degree, Alma Jamal, though he's always sort of had his brand and he's been out there as a leader. But I, I think some of the older pianists that, you know, someone will be like, oh, now let's give Jeffrey Keezer his chance. You know, now that he's 60 years old and he's a so-called quote unquote elder statesman, you know, you know, so I, I don't know, but uh, I, I've had a great career and and I've I've been able to play with just about every one of my uh, heroes and and sort of you know both musical and human human heroes in in the world that I grew up listening to and really appreciating and and so I really I have nothing to complain about and so life is good. <laughs> and you know what that's that's very true. And from what from your answer, I I actually have come up with an answer, and it is this. Make noise as a side man, and then maybe you can have a little more pull, some some leverage. And secondly, if you're not the side man, you want to hire great side men that are known, and that'll give you a better chance. Well, absolutely, you know, and and that's what that's what Miles Davis knew, that's what Art Blakey knew, who are you know among the the greatest band leaders in in the history of, of jazz. They um, they knew that their music and their brand would only become be better by um, by hiring people in their band who, you know, they weren't worried about anyone like upstaging them or outshining them. They would just get you know, and and that's what Chris Bodie does now. I I, I play with Chris. I've been in his band for about six years, and and Chris 
also knows that. He hires great musicians for his band and you know and and hey, the guy can really play too. I mean, it's it's not to take away from any, you know, he he brings a he you know, he he brings a a, a huge amount to to the table every night. But um, you know, he also has a great band and and it just it makes the whole thing better. Yes, it does. We just talked to Chris uh last week actually and a great talk and at that time i didn't know that you were in his band so that was really cool i got even that much more excited uh knowing i was going to speak to you uh, about a week later yeah so that's really cool so you mentioned art blakey you told us that you started your professional career at the young age of 14 and so just four short years later how did you end up in art blakey's jazz messengers right so, so this is one of these things that, that like years later, I, I sort of heard about it being kind of a, kind of a pop psychology, new agey sort of thing that they called the, uh, they called it the secret or they called it the law of attraction. And <laughs> this is something that, uh, the, the general concept is if you put enough energy out there into the universe, kind of single-mindedly into one thing, Eventually, the universe will, will relent, you know, or will hear you and sort of give give you that back. Um, which is why, you know, people might let's say you want to have I don't I don't know. Let's say you want a a new Cadillac, you know. So you you hang this picture up. This 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 was like even like going back to like nineteen eighties or or earlier, sort of sort of you know power of positive thinking kind of corporate stuff. But, um, you know, let's say you, you want a Cadillac, so you put a picture of a Cadillac up in your fridge, and that's supposed to make the universe kind of amplify that thought for you and eventually make your dreams come true. So sometimes those things work and sometimes they don't. But in, in my case, coming back down to earth <laughs> for a moment, um, and, and I believe in all that stuff anyway, I think it's great. But uh, I do too, by the way. You, you know, yeah, yeah, right. So um, when I was about 14 or 15, um, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, we, we found out they were playing a concert in uh, at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. So it was in the middle of February. It was interesting because Jim Hall, the guitarist, opened up the show. Little did I know that Jim would also become one of my bosses much, much later, you know? So so we begged my dad, a bunch of us kids, there was like four of us, a bunch of my friends, kind of jazz head friends, who we were all trying to learn how to play and stuff. And we begged my dad to drive us to this concert in the middle of a blizzard, you know, in February, and, and we drove um, something like four hours, and, and we heard Art's band, uh, which at the time contained Mulgrew Miller on piano, who became a really dear friend of mine and one of my most significant influences and, and important, you know, pianist in my life. Um, and it was a band with Terrence Blanchard and Donald Harrison and uh, John Toussaint and Monty Plaxico. And, uh, and so I met Art, like, real briefly after the concert, but not much came of it. But then I, I, about a year later, I met a pianist named James Williams. I'm trying to not make this too long and boring <laughs> for your listeners, but uh, James Williams was a pianist from Memphis who was Art Blakey's pianist and musical director for several years in the late 70s into the early 80s, into con- sort of continuing into the, the era where like Wynton Marsalis and Branford Marsalis were in Art Blakey's band and Bobby Watson and those guys. It's kind of kind of kind of early '80s stuff. James became a dear friend, and we started corresponding. And I kept I started sending him cassette tapes of like my friends and I playing new compositions that I'd written, you know. And so 
how does this go? Eventually, when I got to, I, I decided to go to Berkeley, the Berkeley College of Music. This was like 1988. I would take the train, like the Amtrak, down to New York on the weekends, whenever I had the money, <laughs> and and hang out with James Williams. And he would take me around to different clubs. He introduced me to so many people that were like, I was like a kid in a candy store. Like I was like 18 years old, walking around New York and running into, oh, there's. Walter Davis. Oh, there's Roy Haynes. Oh, there's yes, Cecil Taylor. Oh, that's there's the best. You know, all these guys. It was crazy. So, um, and then there was a club there called Bradley's. Yes, we a, heard about Bradley's. Yeah, uh, yeah. Rufus Reed, I think, was yeah. the guy who told us about Bradley's. Everybody would come there. Uh, yeah, that was the spot to hang and, and play and tell people you're back in town, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Rufus actually played on my first record, and I met him when I was a, a teenager. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, if you played, if you played Bradley's, like, you know, I, I would look up from the piano sometimes and just see like 10 or 12 great pianists all sitting there, you know, and, and they're all, you know, they're all coming over there after their gig. Cause Bradley's was like, like the late night hang, you know, after, like it was like the after show kind of thing. And you'd see, you know, Cecil would be there. You'd see like, uh, you know, McCoy Tyner at the bar or, or Tommy Flanagan or Kirk Lightsey or Ray Bryan or Junior Mance or Harold Mayburn, you know, all, everybody would be there. Everyone who lived in New York or that was in New York that day. So anyway, uh, but it was James Williams, the pianist who introduced me to Art Blakey. Uh, Art invited me to sit in with him at a club called McKell's. When I was back in Boston at school, I, I, Benny Green was the pianist in Art Blakey's band by that time. This is like 1980. Uh, nine, and Benny was gracious enough to also let me sit in with the band, and and so now this is like uh, before the era of having to worry about identity theft and stuff like that. So I remember okay. <laughs> sort of sitting sitting in the back of the regatta bar in Boston, and and Art Blakey walks up to me after I'd sat in with the band, and he goes, he goes, give me your passport and in your social social security number, and. Uh, and I'm just like, why? What are you talking about? He goes, you're going to be a jazz messenger. I need you to go on tour with us, you know, in the fall or something like that. Wow. And and I went, and I'm just thinking to myself, well, is this does Benny know about this? Is is this okay with everybody? You know. Wow. Uh, um, and then so within, I, then I moved to New York that fall, and within about a week of moving to New York, um, I got I got the actual call from from arts people, and and I joined the band. And um, the reason I refer to the law of attraction stuff is that all through high school I was a big fan of Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers I had all the records uh you know with all the great bands from Clifford Brown through like you know Freddie and Wayne and then the, you know the later stuff with Mulgrew and Donald Brown and James and everybody and 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 I had a band with my high school friends playing that music and and we were trying to like sort of sound like Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers and then when I got to Berkeley I joined the uh the Jazz Messengers Ensemble, which was, uh, the instructor was Bill Pierce, the tenor saxophonist who played in, uh, in the band at the same time as James did. So I spent a good probably three to four years really focusing very intently on the music of the Jazz Messengers. So mm. all this to say, like when I actually got to sit in with art, I knew all the tunes already. And, um, it just felt like the most natural thing in the world. I mean, it was a thrill, you know, it was totally fun, but, and I was totally nervous, but at the same time I was kind of like, I felt really comfortable. And to me it felt like there's no other option 
or no other possibility but for me to be in this band. Now, I want to ask you this. Uh, how did your career change by the decades? And tell us some lessons that you learned by the decade, if you, if you can categorize it like that. Well, sure. I mean, by, you know, in my teens, of course, that I was just learning and, and sort of figuring out the language of jazz in a very um, kind of methodical sort of intellectual way and, and spending a lot of time just practicing and shedding and transcribing and doing all the things you need to do to sort of just learn the vocabulary of the music, you know. Um, and then in my 20s, you know, I was pretty, you know, I'm an only child and uh, I was pretty just, just kind of living in my head a lot, <laughs> okay. you know. So, I mean, you know, you know, the 20s, people's 20s, you know, if you look like an, an artist like, uh, like Esperanza Spalding, who I heard play last night here in San Diego, it was fantastic. And um, someone like Kimbra, the, you know, the singer from New Zealand, singer-songwriter. I'm just thinking of, like, different, you know, musicians in their 20s. Um, you know, there's, there's that sort of, it's, it's, it's a little bit self-involved, but, but, like, very forward-thinking and very you know, very full of energy kind of thing yes. that they do, Yes. you know, and, and, and it's, and it's all, and it's cool, but it's like, you know, as a 45 year old man, I can kind of, who, who still acts like I'm 15 most of the time, you know, <laughs> I can kind of look back and, and kind of like recognize that quality that I, you know, and so I made some records in my twenties, like I made a record called Other Spheres, um, which was heavily influenced by like Wayne Shorter's writing from the eighties, like Atlantis and Phantom Navigator and all that kind of stuff. You know, like my thirties, I think I started to, I think I moved to California in my thirties and I think that kind of chilled me out a little bit. Like I lived in New York most of my twenties and I think my playing was, uh, I, I just be a lot of, a lot of like artistic development for me has been, pretty closely related to how I kind of feel inside. So like, you know, like during the periods of my life when I lived in New York City, like I think my playing had a lot of kind of, uh, you know, like a lot of aggression and energy, but, but, but not always so centered, you know, not, not so grounded. Um, and that's kind of how I feel like when I'm in New York, like I love the city and it's a great place to visit. And I, and I totally, I can go there and totally get recharged and stuff. But but then I need to pull back and I need to kind of get some, some peace and serenity in my life. <laughs> okay. I can understand that. Yeah. You know, which is why I've never been able to live there, um, full time, you know, but it's a great place. And, and I totally, you know, I totally dig it. But like, uh, let's see in my thirties, I moved to California and then I kind of, I started interfacing with musicians from other genres. Like I met a, a guitarist named Kayla Beamer from Hawaii and we started working together and um, playing on each other's albums and things. I did that record with the Peruvian and Argentinian musicians that got nominated for a Best Latin Grammy, or I'm sorry, Best Latin Jazz Album Grammy. Not not the Latin Grammys, but the actual the the Grammy, whatever the regular Grammys. Best Latin, uh, Best Latin, Latin Jazz Album. Jazz Album, yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and let's see, I collaborated also with uh, the Okinawan artist that I mentioned before. Sakatsu Oshima. So your 30s were were the time of collaboration for you. 
Yeah, a lot of collaboration, a lot of musical exploration and sort of genre, you know, blending, boundary hopping stuff. And uh, 40s, well, I'm, I'm halfway in it, so I'm not exactly sure. Still writing yeah. that one, yeah. I think this is called the, the parenting era. I think I'm really focused on, on you know, maybe, maybe I'm, what I'm trying to do is just, you know, keep playing, keep my career moving forward, but also trying to um, focus on, on just developing as a, as a person too and, and being a whole person and not just a, you know, not just a guy who's like highly functional on the piano, but completely dysfunctional in every other way. Right. You need to have, people need to have balance. Yeah. So to I live and grow. Yes. I think that's what I'm trying to do now in my forties is actually like figure out how to live, you know? Now, now that comes at different times for everybody. And it's a lesson that we need to learn. So that's, that's great. Now, Man, I have so many other questions. Let's start with this one. Uh, please share some advice to the listener for teaching as a guest artist in, ensemble, in the ensemble situation. How, how can you pull the best out of an ensemble in s- such a short time? Yeah, well, that's something we do um, often. Like now, especially jazz musicians, we kind of, uh, most of us kind of split our time between teaching and performing. And so I think having, you know, having the, the ability to teach and communicate these concepts, which are pretty esoteric and pretty uh, highly specialized kind of skill sets to kids, the most important thing about playing jazz is learning how to listen to each other. And, and sometimes it means this, you know, some idea that you have, let's say you have some some idea that you think is really important or that's going to really contribute, you know, something profound to that music in that moment, you know, sometimes you don't have to do it, you know, and you don't have to do everything, you know, teaching, teaching the younger musicians to sort of let go a little bit and, and, and kind of let things happen a little bit more. Yes. It's always encouraging to hear the young groups, uh, um, like a like a camp like Banff um, in in Canada, they have whole groups that come in. So they they're, you have fully formed, or you know mostly fully formed ensembles that come in from different towns or schools or whatever, and they've got their music and they've got their their concept and their thing that they're attached to. And the fun part for me is uh, seeing who in the group is willing to let go of their clinging to whatever their idea is about their music. You know, like, like I say, you know, well, what if we or like the monk, uh, the monk Institute in Los Angeles at UCLA, like incredible group of kids, like pro level players. Absolutely. You go to any town in America, you know, these guys are going to be among the best players in that town, but you, you can see right away in the group who's like, you know, willing to try stuff and who isn't. So, so you say, well, what if we just, you know, this section was sort of okay, but this other section was kind of maybe a bit redundant or maybe it doesn't really fit at all. Maybe this, this other section could become a whole nother song on its own, you know, or what if you took uh, some of the ingredients from section A and put them into section B and, and took some of the ingredients from section E and put them into section F or something like that. And, um, or like, what if we didn't do it in the, the traditional sort of bebop era 
song form, which is like melody, solo, 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 melody. You know what I mean? Like, yes. What if we did something different? And you can see right away who's like into trying stuff and who isn't. And, and it, you know, so it's sort of a, it's, it's like walking into uh, Congress or something. The main thing it sounds like that you try to get the students to understand in a short amount of time is that you want to learn how to listen and, and secondly, secondly, be comfortable with allowing things to happen instead of making them happen all of the time. Absolutely. And, and, and with that comes the willingness to try new things because things won't always go as you planned. And that's part of music. Absolutely. I mean, some, some of the best moments in music are complete train wrecks. Like, for example, you take an example, like a historical example, like uh, Ella Fitzgerald singing Mac the Knife. And, you know, there's like that recording, it's a live recording, and she forgets the lyrics, right? Yes. And then, and then she starts improvising some, you know, like, whatever it is. I can't remember the words of this song, blah, blah, blah. And, and that becomes like an iconic Classic. version of that song. Yes. You know? And, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of some other examples, maybe just, you know, any live recording of jazz is going to have things that, you know, where the musicians walk away from the gig feeling terrible, like, oh, I totally clammed that note or I missed that whole thing or, you know, but. Oh, man, I have a great example because it actually involves you. <laughs> this, this is it involves great. me missing notes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were you were in the band, and uh, the way I came to know of you was our Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, but it was a reunion band, and uh, Lewis Nash was playing. Okay, and I believe Benny Golson was in that band too, uh, and it was live somewhere. I don't remember, uh, but on the re- on the recording, man, on Benny's solo, you heard this big, huge drop of a glass and it just oh, no. shattered and it, i mean it was intense in the solo but benny made it a part of the song it was a part of the song it happened during a during a during the peak of a solo so uh most people would be like oh man a glass dropped right here you know like be careful benny golson's playing you know i i love the the idea and this is kind of very john cage-ish you know but i, I love the idea of using ambient sounds in in the room to become part of the performance um it's it's cool as art and it's actually good as good entertainment as well because the audience picks up on it you know like uh, i was playing uh you, you know classic example would be like someone's cell phone going off you know and then the imp- you know the musicians pick up the melody of the ringtone and start playing it on stage or improvising off it or something like that you know and uh you know and and there was one beautiful uh moment where i was playing I was playing duo with the, the vibraphonist Joe Locke, and we were playing at this club that people love, a venue that people love in Northern California called the, the, uh, the Douglas Beach House or the Bach Dancing and Dynamite Society. It's in Half Moon Bay, and um, the, the venue is like on the second floor with these giant windows overlooking there. It's right on the beach. Like you're looking out at, at the ocean with the sun setting as you play. And it's it's one of my favorite venues to play, and, and a lot of people just love it there. Um, so we were playing something very soft, like a ballad. It was like a really quiet moment in, in the piece, and then it started raining. And you could hear the rain on the roof kind of going from, like, you know, intermittent drops to sort of heavier rain to, like, being a full-on downpour. 
And so the sound of this rain became like a percussion instrument and became part of the performance. And we were playing with it and against it. And it was, it was beautiful. It was one of my favorite moments in music, you know? So I want to change gears on you right now. Will you tell us what Keezer's Piano Lessons is? And what is, what is, it, what is it and how did it come about? Well, what this is, is uh, over the years, I get requests for private lessons from people, sometimes when I'm on the road or by email or, um, you know, asking when I'm going to be in town, if they can come over. And so um, I wanted to come up with a way that I could sort of more effectively uh, teach and spread and, 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 you know, of course, monetize the ideas I have. Um, that I teach people in private lessons, and I sort of boiled it down to about 25 or 30 separate lessons, which are videos that are about 5 to 10 minutes long a piece. They're at a pretty low price point, like about 5 to 10 bucks. Some of them are organized into packs, so you get like maybe 8 lessons for 20 or something like that. But um, it's basically just the stuff I teach privately, so if you were going to have a private lesson with me, at some point it would probably come around you know, to, you know, you know, one of the issues we're having would probably be somehow related to one of the lessons that I've already made on video. So at least it's what I know. And, and I don't teach entry level stuff, um, only because there's so many people out here that do that better than I do and really have a grip on how to just introduce people to playing jazz. You know, the idea of improvisation and jazz, piano and voicings and all those kind of things. Um, and plus, all that stuff is on YouTube for free anyway, so I don't feel like I can rightfully charge people for you know that kind of information. So my stuff is more is more like um, like like the sort of quirky stuff that I do that some people like, you know, and they want to figure out what I'm doing or whatever. So I put a bunch of that stuff up on the internet and it's, you know, it's keezerspianolessons.com. Um, they're all a la carte lessons at this moment. I'm, I'm getting ready to, I'm, I'm trying to think about how to maybe put a DVD together of all of it or most of it, which I think would be useful to academic institutions. You know, it's easier for them to just buy a DVD. Yes. Um, and some people, some people would prefer that format, um, but for the moment, they're just a la carte lessons, and uh, you know they're all kind of intermediate to advanced level stuff because that's just sort of what I feel comfortable teaching or attempting to teach. Uh, we talk about this often on the show uh, that you, a musician, especially today, needs to have what we say, multiple irons in the fire. So that, I think that's a good way to package what you know, uh, make the most of your time, because you have so many people pulling from you from city to city. It would be physically impossible to teach everybody, but what you've done is put something online for them to pull from. And so you save your time, and you're able to help everybody too. And uh, that's really smart. We can learn from that. Thanks for talking with us today, Jeff. It was a pleasure having you. Absolutely. Great questions, and, and, and uh, it's been great talking to you, and I uh, look forward to hearing this. That's all for today's show, but first I want to take the time now to say thank you to my listener for continuing to press play on Behind the No Podcast. I hope that when you press play that you learn something new or that you are reminded of something or inspired to 
act on something that's been inside you regarding your music career or maybe another another dream that you have and so with that said i want to encourage you please go to behindthenote.com sign up for the email list this year 2016 i want to spend more time talking to you but live so we're going to do some webinars this year and if you want to be a part of that then sign up for the email list all right that's all for today thanks for pressing play and we'll catch you in the next episode god bless you